the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Michael Lee, the current collection and content manager at the Anzac Memorial in Hyde Park in Sydney. Michael has been a professional museum curator and collection manager for over 30 years. He's worked on numerous exhibitions and with a variety of collections in several cultural institutions, including the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences in Sydney, the Australiana Fund and the Anzac Memorial in Sydney. As a keen student of Australian history, he is in the final stages of writing up his PhD thesis at the University of Sydney. Michael is going to talk about his father's history in the Australian Air Force during World War II. His father was Flying Officer Clement Victor Lee, who trained in Canada under the Empire Air Training Scheme. Clement served in an RAF squadron, which was part of the 2nd Tactical Air Force. He completed 42 operational sorties, including those on D-Day. He largely flew the North American Mitchell Bomber with 98 Squadron RAF Dunsfold. He had some exciting and dangerous moments in his life while operating Mitchell Bombers. On his fourth op with the squadron, now as a warrant officer, a piece of flak smashed the perspex before his eyes during a raid on construction works in the Beauvoir area of Normandy in France. And he said at the time... We were just turning from the target when a piece of flax smashed a glass panel of the bombsite and sent a shower of glass splinters into the compartment. This piece of molten shrapnel was kept for many years as a souvenir. Despite that drama and that experience, he was again in the air at 18.15 hours for a second operation on the same day in the same aircraft, which received two more holes due to heavy, accurate flak. He was also involved in the D-Day operations. His logbook notes sightings of jet aircraft during an operation. Clement remembered that one jet flew so fast that it was out of sight in seconds. Just before he left the squadron, a Flight Lieutenant P.A. Stanford, the squadron's navigation officer, wrote in his logbook in the section headed Proficiency Assessments, and this is what he wrote. This navigator has been the leading navigator on many operations. His bombing has been of a high order and he has been an asset to the squadron, both operationally and on the ground. Listen as Michael explores with you his father's World War II experiences and some of his own. Well, here we are at the... Hyde Park Anzac War Memorial. This is an unbelievable venue. And listening to this as you are at the moment, I encourage you at some stage or other, wherever you are in Australia, to take the time to come here because, trust me, it is worth it. And I'm very pleased to say that uh, this morning, Michael Lee is our very guest, great guest. He's the Collection and Content Manager. Hello, Michael. Hi, Gareth. How are you going? I'm well. What, what is a Content and Collection Manager? Well, I come from a museum background. And um, collection management is um, the management of a museum collection. So it's um, 
it's cataloging the objects in the collection, it's um, making sure they're safe and secure in storage, it's putting them on display, it's working with curators to develop exhibitions, doing research behind the objects. Right. So it's a multifaceted Okay. Kind of position. So if, for argument's sake, at home I am and I have some collections from my father's war service, he was in the RAAF, and I'm thinking, well, he's no longer with us, what will I do with these? I've got war memorial in canberra i've got various air force associations how do you get me to give them to you or what what's that process usually our um the 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 offers of donation that we have are totally unsolicited um and we assess each donation um because we do have there's a, a some criteria that it um it has to meet and it may be that it's more appropriate in another institution or the war memorial in canberra um, our particular focus is on um, veterans from new south wales so um, if if the collection is from new south wales you know we, we would or the person has spent a lot of time in new south wales you know most of their life in new south wales we're kind of interested to talk about that and the personal stories that are behind those collections sure. So if I was to ring the War Memorial and someone answers the phone out there and I tell them what I've got, who are they going to put me through to? Uh, they'll put you through to either Brad or myself okay. or one of my uh, our colleagues, uh, the research officers. Later on, we might talk about my father's Air Force collection. Okay. Now, I, <laughs> I know your father, and it's your father I want to talk about very much, though, Flying Officer Clement Victor Lee, who served in World War and in fact took part in D-Day as well. I want to talk about him in a moment because that's a fascinating story, but let's just talk about you in a moment. for a moment. You're interested in history and museums. Where did that start? That's a very interesting question. I'm glad I asked. <laughs> because it, um, Dad had a real um, passion for history and um, as, a, as an eight-year-old, I remember there was an old shed in the back of the garden that was falling down and it had a couple of tin trunks in it. And me being a curious eight-year-old, I was the youngest in the family. I had older siblings that were way older than me. Um, I think it was one Saturday or Sunday morning, I was getting a stick. I was always warned, don't don't go near the shed because there's (laughs) red backs there and, you know, they're going to kill you. Um, Got a stick and lifted up these trunks and... There were, I could see these bits of uniform and papers and documents and photos and things. And um, I, I, you know, reefed out, got a rake or something or other and reefed out a few of them and kind of came into mum and dad in the bedroom probably on a Sunday morning saying, look at this, you know. And thinking back now, I think it was those experiences working with or you know, objects, artefacts, sure. material culture that really kind of started me on my way in working in museums and collections and things. So when you went to secondary school, high school, did that interest in history develop even further? Did you take history? And if so, how effective was that for you? Uh, well, I, yeah, I, I was always interested in history and um you know, doing the HSC, was doing modern history and, and ancient history, um, then continued doing it for a couple of years at university. Yep. And, um, you know, then 
did subsequent degrees in, in history. That's fair enough. Just go back to when you went into the bedroom where Dad and Mum was. What did Dad say when you brought all these pieces <laughs> of photos and things I, in? I think he was surprised. And it kind of – I think it it kind of forced them to think that, you know, they hadn't – it had been put in the shed in 1945 or 1947 when they first moved into the house. Sure. They it kind of prompted them to um, do something about the shed and to go through this material. And so, you know, more things were discovered. And one of my vivid memories is, you know, in the early 70s, backyards had incinerators. And we, Dad, one of my early memories is Dad not coming in for dinner he mum had prepared dinner we were sitting down to dinner dad was still out there as the it was getting dark he was going had a torch was going through the maps and you could see him he was re- remembering what these what happened were here and then putting them in the incinerator you're kidding no did One you did you go other. out and say dad dad <laughs> please don't no he, i remember i think i was why are you doing that and you know, he made some kind of excuse about you know it's, you know, it, it, it was secret information or yeah. You know, there, like there's that. often a view that uh, I mean I know I had a grandfather who served in World War One. He was part of the Light Horse, and he would never talk to me about his experience in the war. Do you think that perhaps, you know, he didn't want to remember? He could look at it and then burn it. I don't want to talk to anyone about this. I think so. That might have been part of it because. Um, the snippets of information that we heard were the same kind of snippets um, that he, when he was remembering or talking about his service during sure. the war. So we found out a lot since from you know doing research into you know the areas he was fighting in, but um, you know that, that's another thing. On like for on, on Anzac Day, for example, he would always march um, at his local sub branch and also in the city, but. He never had his medals mounted. They were always just in a mm. box in a drawer. Mm. He he would just wear his, he'd wear a suit with his RSL badge and a stick of rosemary, and that seemed to be kind of a common thing amongst you know his fellows, his sure, other mates. Sure. Um, I know I said I was going to talk about your father a bit later. I want to talk about you, but just me explore one thing about your father then, if you. If I ask you now, what is your enduring memory? Because our family and our loved ones live on in our memory. What is your enduring memory of your dad? I think it is this love of history and that he's he's passed on. Um, certainly in retirement, he got very involved with doing family history research. Um, and my aunt, his only sister, um, was very involved in that as well. Um, and yeah, I think that is his, you know, his legacy is the history that you've inherited. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a couple of the exhibitions that you've worked on. The Applied Associations one. What, do you tell me about that? One of those exhibitions that you worked on at the Applied Arts and Sciences. You've worked there. Well, yeah, the Powerhouse Museum. Yep. So the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. Um, I actually was the curator of the musical instrument collection that's another string to my bow so to speak oh very punny yeah okay (laughs) (laughs) and um so we did music exhibitions so from um you know uh, classical music historical music um through to 
um, rock music, so the real wild child rock music exhibition. Was the exhibition universal as in all the planet or was it just Australia? It was just an Australian focus. Right, okay. Um, we did Indigenous music, Australian Indigenous music yep. exhibitions as well. Um, but I also worked, um, before I was a curator, I worked on the transport exhibitions um, and the, the, the first transport exhibition at the powerhouse that opened, I remember when the whole place was gutted and um, P.G. Taylor's Catalina was suspended. Yes, well, I, uh, yes. Um, so I, You were involved <clears throat> in that? Yes. Yeah, excuse me. Where did, where did the Catalina come from? Uh, how, I mean, how did, it's, it, because it was intact. How did you get it? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I, I can't remember. It, it had been in the collection for a while. I'm not sure whether P.G. Taylor actually donated yeah. it. Um, which was a possibility. Um, it had been gutted of instruments and things like that sure. um, to be able to hang it to take some of the weight off it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what about the Australiana Fund? What what was that all about? Uh, well, that was a job I had. The Australiana Fund uh, s- still operating, and they look after the. Um, vice regal properties and prime minister's properties mm-hmm. in Australia and the and the artifacts that are in those properties. So in Sydney, it's um, um, Admiralty House and um, Government House. Yes. And in Canberra, it's the lodge and and where the governor stays. So as does well. that mean you were therefore responsible for what went in it and where it went when it did get into it? No, I was in a contract. I was a contract curator in that position. So. Um, uh, Sonia Abbey is the is the curator there, right. and she's the person who was the, you know, the main curator. So I, I helped them out, and we, I was writing, helping to write a book, and and wrote a few of the essays that were in that book about their collection. Fair enough. Basically, as a decorative arts collection. Okay, and I believe you're also doing a PhD at the moment, uh, or correct. have done one. Yeah, well, which uh, is it? I'm I'm just writing it up. I've got to submit it by the end of June. What's the topic? Um, is related to my work at the Powerhouse Museum. So it's about Australian musical instrument makers. And while I was there, I was trying to build up the collection of 19th century Australian-made musical instruments by Australian makers. So the chapter I'm writing about at the moment is um, convict makers that came to Australia, which have largely been ignored. You mentioned another string to your bow, so let's just walk down that pun for a moment. What do you play a musical instrument? Uh, my yeah, my training is as a classical guitarist. Really? Yes. So you have two paths. You've got history as one of your passions, and classical ca- guitar as another passion. So the is that link? Did that is what happened at the at the powerhouse museum because of that background? You were able to do what you did. Yeah, um, basically, you know, I, I worked, um, I, I, I started working there in 1985 and part of my job's or description in those days was um, cataloguing the musical instrument collection because mm. I had an interest in music and, and that kind of thing and eventually there were other people that were working in the roles, fantastic people, very knowledgeable, working in the role as the music sure. curator and eventually, you know, serving my apprenticeship I, I became the music curator. What's your favourite classical guitar piece? <laughs> um, I love Leo Brower, who was a Cuban um, guitarist, um, contemporary guitarist. What about the works of, is it Rodrigo? The oh, uh, yes. Aranjuez. Conchetta de Aranjuez yeah, yeah. is, is fantastic. I can't play it because it's one of the most difficult 
things. Well, in. I'll give you a challenge when you go home. <laughs> the next time we talk, you can play a version of it. How did you get to the here, the Anzac Memorial? Um, I there was a huge restructure at the powerhouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funny about that, and it's still going on. Um, and there were about a hundred of us left, and um, that's when I started working at the Australiana Fund. Mm-hmm. And then um, someone told me. Um, who I'd worked with at the powerhouse that a job had come up here as a collection manager and I had an interest in, in military history and particularly Air yes, Force history. Yes, of course. And um, I was successful in getting the job. So I started here in the beginning of 2016. I'm not asking Michael for a political comment but I need to ask it because of my passion for history. Uh, you did history at school, ancient and modern. You did it at university. How well do you think... Australian history is handled within our school system. Could it be better? Um, it could be. I think the emphasis has changed. It's become a more thematic emphasis. Mm. Um, and even at, at like university level, history is, is sometimes uh, taught as a cross-disciplinary mm-hmm. um, ideal. So that's one of the things that's allowed me to study you know, music and mm. a lot of history as well. Um, from a school's perspective, um, yeah, I, I, you know, that it, I think people may have the impression that Australian history has been done to death in the past mm. and it follows certain lines of explorers or what have you, but, you know, it's much broader and diverse than that. And, yeah. Um, so there are opportunities to expand, I think. Yeah. Just as, as an aside, when I was at school, one of my teachers was a man by the name of Bill Collins, who used to be on television and mm. do all those films and wonderful things. He was my history teacher, one of my history teachers. And he made history come alive for me because he actually used his knowledge of film and he brought films into the classroom, like, for example, Ben-Hur or the Ten Commandments mm. or whatever, mm. and used it to encourage us to think beyond the, the event that we're watching on the thing, to think how it connects to what happened in America, what ha- what's happening in Australia. And he, he showed us the way to make links, historical links between events mm. and how they're all interconnected. So I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Your dad, your dad. How did he get involved in the Air Force? What was that? Can you remember? Do you know the inf- enough of information to be able to share it? I think there's, yeah, there are some things that influenced him. I, I remember asking him uh, a long time ago what he, what influenced him. Um, and one of them was as a, he grew up in Adelaide, and as a, a like a 13 or a 14 year old, um, Kingsford Smith was doing joy flights around Australia. You could pay to have a flight with Kingsford Smith at different airports around the place. He was in Adelaide and Dad went on one of those flights. He flew with Sir Charles Kingsford Smith. Yeah. On a joy flight. It was, yeah, it was a, um, I think it was the Southern Cross and they were like passenger flights. So they (sighs) fitted it out with... Wow. With... um, chairs and and they were they were raising money all around the country doing these joy flights and and that was in the mid 1930s yep about 35 36 that that was happening so um dad went on one of those flights um he also had like a sense of service i think as well because um 
he was named after his great uncle who was killed at the first battle of Bulacore in 1917. So dad was born almost 12 months later to the day and he was his name was Clem as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. So um, um, he had that sense and his dad's mother, my grandmother, was the next of kin of this uncle who was killed. So right. I think that was always in the family as mm-hmm. well. So there was that s- sense of service. And coincidentally, I mean, it's, it's just a coincidence, but the day he was born and came into the world is the day that the Red Baron went out of the world. So he was born on the 21st of April, 1918, which is when the Red Baron von Richthofen was shot down. Isn't it? By an Australian, by the way. By an Australian. (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's make that point clear. Um, When did he join the RAAF? He was in the reserve in in 1940, and then he actually joined in April 1941. Okay, before Pearl Harbor? Oh, well, April 1941, is that what yes. you meant? Yeah, okay, definitely before Pearl Harbor. So was he then sent to Canada for training? How did that occur? He was, he was in Adelaide doing training, first of all. Um, for, so he wasn't sent to Canada as part of the Empire Air Training Scheme until right. December of 41, I think. So he did the elementary flight training school, yep. and I think kind of scraped through that um and then (laughs) um that was as a pilot and then um when he was sent to canada later in the year he continued um pilot training um until i think they tapped him on the shoulder and said um we think you maybe you should try something else yes yeah so i one of his stories was you know he they were doing a test flight with an instructor in a tiger moth over the, around the Grand Canyon area and he got caught in turbulence or something or other and he had to, he was kind of going down and down in this spiral and he the instructor had to step in and get him out of it and you know anyway he he didn't do that well so where did he where did he end up then in the air force what what was his discipline so um i guess he 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 came from um a kind of accounting and clerical background so he had an analytical kind right. of mind and um he he became an observer as they called them in those days so he was a navigator training as a navigator both in day and night operations um bomb aiming and as an air gunner so those three kind of disciplines were combined as an Mm. observer in an aircraft how long did he spend in canada so most of 1942 um was spent in canada and then um and er- the early part of 43. Um, so I-, I was just amazed looking at his logbook how much training they went through. They were so skilled, I think, at, at what they were doing. So that Empire training course was pretty good, apparently. Yeah, I think yeah. so. It Definitely. certainly trained a lot of Australian Air Force personnel. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So what what the steps going from Canada to end up ending up with the RAF, the RAF? I mean, did he come back to Australia or did he go straight to England? How did that occur? It, um, it, it was kind of, I guess it was a course of instruction that in Canada that you went on. He did exams in all those um, disciplines, mm-hmm. if you like. And um, then they were sent directly from Canada to England. And... Um, 
ended up at a um, kind of a, a, a mustering base yep. um, where they awaited to be sent to an operational training unit um, which would train them up for a particular squadron and then they would join the squadron on operations. Now that's interesting because he's in the RAAF in Australia. He joins in April 1941. He ends up in Canada and <clears throat> the EATS being trained. They send him to England. I wonder what the steps were because he ends up in England and he ends up in the RAF, the RAF, rather than being in an RAAF uniform flying in Australia. What? How did that all occur? I, I don't know. Well, he he had a um, a delay in his career. So um, he was with a group of Australians when that in Bournemouth in May of 1943. Yep. Um, and they were they'd been there a couple of months. They I think they arrived in March, mid March from Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, they were there one Sunday in May. Um, when minding their own business, as people do, um, 26 Focke-Wulf fighters, 190s, did a low-level attack on Bournemouth with high-explosive bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, he was caught with his um, four other comrades in the, in the raid. Um, I don't know whether they were had kind of... Um, decided to hang around together because they were forming a crew. Yep. But he was the observer or navigator of the five. There was another chap who was the pilot and the three others were wireless air gunners. So there was a, a small little group of them. Um, they were out. Um, I'm not sure whether it was actually at an airfield or whether it was in the, in the town, but uh, a bomb um, um was dropped just near where they were they had to run behind a small kind of parapet wall um and they suffered you know cuts and abrasions but dad was um injured um more severely and his eardrums were broken and uh so he was in hospital until from that time until december of 43 Mm -hmm. and I think that was one of the things that um, delayed his progress and his um, the way he was allocated possibly with other two uh, RAF or RAAF squadrons. So the three air gunners, um, a couple of those went into RAAF squadrons. RAAF squadrons. Like, yes, yep. like four six six squadron. Yep. yep. Um, but they had, you know, there there was other people from other nationalities there. Um, and and I guess there was a need for okay, so men or in RAF. So he's flying in an RAF uniform during World War Two. Is that? Uh, no, he's flying in an RAAF uniform. He has his Australian shoulder titles on. Right. Um, but it was a mixed crew. So he, one of his pilots, um, well, his pilots were all English, apart from the last pilot that he flew with, who was actually from South America. So he was an expat who had been living in South America and there was a South American volunteer force that had started. So, and then there were Canadians in the, in the crew as well. Mm. So yeah, it was very In diverse. any of his notes or letters or paraphernalia that you found, did you ever read anything where he thought about or talked about what was happening back in Australia? We had a prime minister who was saying, forget 
England, it's now America. We've had the fall of Singapore and all those Australian airmen who died in, in that in, encounter. Did he ever, did you read anything where he actually reflected on wishing to be back in Australia or did he, was it totally committed RAF? Um, I think he, he was totally committed in the, the war against Hitler in Europe. Um, I've never come across anything about his um, thoughts about what was happening in Australia. Um, certainly his sister and his father. His mother had died in about 1940. Um, so his, his father and his sister were still in Australia so, mm. and, and a lot of his friends. So um, there was obviously concerns there and, and some of his friends from before the war had, were fighting in the Pacific. Sure. What can you tell us about the various sorties that he flew while he was in the RAF during World War Two, he d- before and we'll lead into D Day. But before that, he he didn't talk a lot about the, the operations at all. Okay, but um, one of his it was about his sixth or eighth operation um, after joining the squadron. Um, they were they were on a mission, uh, an operation. Um, s- um, some explosions happened um, from anti-aircraft fire and there was a lot of flak going on um, and it smashed the um, perspex front of the aircraft that he flew, which was... A, which is close to where he was, no doubt. Yes, right right in front of him. So he was, um, he was flying Mitchell aircraft then. So if you know the Mitchell aircraft's got a large... Um, perspex dome at the front so there's a lot of glass there yes um he it, that was smashed he was saved by the bomb site um he also was wearing his may west and said that afterwards that you excuse know, me for someone listening to what you're saying now what what is a may west a may west is like a life jacket um and may west was a very well famous known. actress yes <laughs> uh famous actress and, um, Very voluptuous. Yes, and and these um, life jackets were were named after. after okay, her. okay. So we, he's wearing his May West, <laughs> and then what happens? Um, it the the shrapnel smashed the um, front perspex, and it you know it was burning hot, and you know hit him. Um, so on the chest, that the May West um, stopped it from you know actually hurting him but the glass through went into his face so he had a mouthful of glass so there's there's an account um, that was published at the time in the Air Force press that um, he um, was asked by the pilot when are you coming upstairs to join him as kind of a co-pilot and he said well as soon as I have the opportunity to take all the glass out of my mouth um, and reading some of the letters, I just discovered that some of his friends in Australia had sent him. They um, had heard of that account as well and kind of congratulating him that he survived it. So it was a lucky escape. Yeah, but, but it's more than a lucky escape. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't when they went back and landed to have repairs to the aircraft and he had repairs, a number of very short hours later, he's back in the plane, off again. That's right. His logbook says there was a hole in the plane from that incident um, in the actual metal work of the plane rather than just the fuselage. So they must have been able to repair that somehow. Um, 
Yeah, and that was that was in the morning, I think, and then by six o'clock in the evening, he was back in the same aircraft <laughs> doing another op. Um, and the logbook says there were two holes after that op. And then the next day, they were doing another two ops in the day and um, holes again. So, so this particular aircraft, he did used to talk about it, M for mother. And he's, he, his story was that it had so many holes in it, it was eventually scrapped. So <laughs> that's, that's incredible, <laughs> incredible. Um, and this is with 98 Squadron. Was this that, is what 98 you... Squadron RAF. So it's a Mitchell Squadron. It's based at a place called Dunsfold, which is near Guildford. And there were some other um, um, Mitchell Squadrons that were based there as well. There was 180 Squadron, which was an RAF Squadron, and 320 Squadron was a Dutch squadron mm-hmm. um, flying with the RAF. Did he ever, does he talk in his letters about his relationship with the British that he was flying with and wh- how they all got along or was that not mentioned? It, it was not mentioned. Um, I remember asking him if there were other Australians um, in the squadron and he said, you know, no, there weren't. Um, there certainly weren't in his crew. Yeah. Um, but there were other Australians in 98 squadron. Um yeah. Now the significant turning point, of course, is D-Day. His involvement in D-Day. Can you share that with us? Well, again, this is a, this is one of the things he didn't really talk much about. The previous one, I think, because it was such early uh, in the early days of his flying yeah. operationally, um, was was well remembered. And you know, we at one stage, I never saw it, but my siblings remember the the piece of hot molten shrapnel um, that he'd kept as a souvenir from that incident. D-Day, he didn't really talk much about. Um, it's highlighted in his logbook. It's you in, have all this information in front of you. Is there something you want to share from the logbook about this? or um, it, There's not much information at all. Um, it's, it's written in a different colour. It was a night operation, um, and he just says, Ops, D-Day attack, railway road, bridge... Um, and then it's got the coordinates, light flak, and the number of bombs, four by 1,000. Was the railway bridge destroyed? Uh, yes, they didn't go back for, uh, another time for it. So therefore he had a successful sortie that took out a bridge, Yes, his plane? Uh, yes. With the, the M for Mother plane or a different Mitchell? Uh, it was M for Mother. M for Mother. That, yeah. that plane has, has <laughs> certainly served a lot with your father. Yes, it did. I think he served something like six operations, 16 operations flying that and, and with the particular squadron leader, um, squadron leader Bundock. How does but, it make you feel, Michael, that your father is connected to one of the most, if not the most significant event in World War II, military event in World War II, the turning of the tide? Your father was there. Your father had an, an impact. Your father... His plane took out a bridge. How does that make you feel? Um, I'm awestruck by by the enormity of it. Yeah. And does this drive you, can, that in your heart, does this drive you in terms of your passion? I mean, here we are at one of the preeminent facilities of war memorabilia in Australia, if not the world, the War Memorial in Hyde Park. Does that drive you every day to strive to do more and more and better and better? I think so. I think it does. It's, it's a brilliant collection and, and having that kind of insight of a veteran um, 
it really brings home, you know, what they had to do. Obviously, your father thought the RAAF, or flying, was the defence force he wanted to go. He didn't want to go to sea. He didn't want to drive a tank. He wanted to be in a plane. Could we put that down to the Southern Cross flights with Sir Charles Kingsford Smith, perhaps? I think, yeah, it's a possibility. And he always loved flight. He always loved it. He would, you know, every Saturday, you know, there'd be planes flying over our, our parents' house um, and he'd be looking up at them, identifying what they were. Yeah. Um, or on a Sunday drive, would go out to the airport to look at the planes. Mm. He survived World War Two. World War Two comes to an end. What were the steps getting back to Australia, meeting your mother, forming a family? Uh, <laughs> Again, they didn't talk much about that, um, unfortunately. Um, he met mum. During the war or during after? During the war. And she lived in England. She um, had, a, had a, an extraordinary war as well. She wasn't serving. She was a younger woman growing up in her teens, um, had been in her grandmother's house um, in um, Aylesbury when a, a, a land, a, or an air mine on a parachute was dropped by a rogue um, Luftwaffe aircraft, just totally destroyed the house. She was in the house with some of her siblings. Um, her grandmother told them to um, um, go under the table because they could hear this drone of a plane mm. coming nearer. And she was, um, she was, her grandmother was injured. She survived, but she was badly cut. Mm. That was one of mum's memories. Um, also arriving, so they, she lived through the Blitz. They lived in London. Um, and eventually they moved to Birmingham. And one of mum's memories was um, being on the train, hearing a raid starting to go over, mm. getting out of the train at Birmingham Station walking through the doors of the station building and everything's just in fire in front of them. These memories, Michael, uh, it's so important that facilities like this one, but more importantly, people like you and all the other staff that work here have to keep this, this history alive. We have to share it with young Australians. Now, I know to some extent it's been encouraging watching Anzac Days, watching the number of people grow in number and a younger group of people, but it's still so important that we have to really make sure this does not ever disappear from our history, from our collective memory, uh, not just as a memory, but alive and well, uh, and be proud that we are part of the country we are proud of and part of. So I want to thank you for sharing your dad's incredible story and also how you've uh, you've becoming... You see, you could have ended up on the stage as a classical guitarist rather than <laughs> sitting here with all this history at your fingertips. But really, Michael, it's been a privilege and a pleasure talking to you. So keep the dream alive with the Hyde Park Anzac War Memorial. Thank you, Gareth. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Michael, just before... I know I said goodbye, but I want to say hello again. Just before I let you go, <laughs> before I let you go you've just given me a, a letter from Dwight D. Eisenhower, who ended up becoming the President of the United States of America, headed Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force. Now, I'm going to read this in a moment, but you tell me how your dad ended up with this. What, what's the background of this letter? So Eisenhower was kind of the supreme commander of the invasion, planning of the invasion of Europe. Um, I noticed in Dad's logbook, but even in 
like March and April, they were having invasion training in, um, prior to D-Day. Um, Eisenhower actually visited their squadron at Dunsfold and visited 98 Squadron and there's photos of Eisenhower addressing some of the officers there. Um, there's also a story that, um, anyway. The <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there'll be a part three in a moment, but continue. <laughs> there's, um, so Eisenhower um, addressed the squadron, visited the squadron, and then on, I think it was in the, the days before D-Day or the day before D-Day, um, they were given this evocative speech from Eisenhower. It was kind of, this is it, lads, we're going over the top. It was the equivalent of that. And um, Dad, I found, had one of these letters that were given out to all the airmen. It was, it was folded, neatly folded up in the top pocket of his, of his uniform in this trunk that was up the back of the, the shed, in the back shed. And this is the letter from the Supreme Commander for leading into D-Day. Soldiers, sailors and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely, but... This is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Dwight D. Eisenhower. Michael, thank you for sharing the letter. And this time, if your microphone is still in your hand, thank you and goodbye. Thank you very much, Gareth. It's a pleasure. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping, and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on 
in the proud tradition of Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.